Well, this morning, what I'd like to do is introduce you to someone and then have you help me figure out what to do with him. His name is Hank, and John Ortberg describes him this way. He says, Hank, we'll call him, was a cranky guy. He did not um, smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it coming at someone else's expense. He had a knack for discovering islands of bad news in oceans of happiness. He would always find a cloud where someone else saw a silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head. So he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble. His was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. There was a period of time when his primary complaints centered around the music in the church. It's too loud, Hank protested. To the staff, to the deacons, to the ushers, and eventually to innocent visitors to the church. We finally had to take Hank aside and explain that complaining to complete strangers was not appropriate. And he would have to restrict his laments to a circle of intimate friends. And they thought that was the end of the matter. A few weeks later, though, a secretary buzzed me on the intercom to say that an agent from OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, was here to see me. I'm here to check out a complaint, he said, and as I try to figure out on who on the staff, Ortberg says, called OSHA over a church problem, he began to talk about decibel levels at airports and rock concerts. Excuse me, he said, are you sure this was someone on the church staff that called? He said, no, he explained, if anyone calls, whether they work here or not, we're obligated to investigate. He says, suddenly the light dawned. Hank had called OSHA and said, the music at my church is too loud. And they sent a federal agent to check it out. By this time, he says, the rest of the church staff had gathered in his office to see the man from OSHA. He said, we don't mean to take light of this, but nothing like this has ever happened around here before. And the OSHA guy says, don't apologize. Do you have any idea how much ridicule I faced around my office since everyone discovered I was going out to bust a church? (laughs) Hank. Hank's... uh, Joylessness often produced sadness in the people around him. He says his children did not know him. His son had a wonderful story about how he met his wife at a dance, but he never told his father because Hank did not approve of dancing. Hank could not effectively love his wife or his children or people outside his family. He was easily irritated. He had little use for the poor, a casual contempt for those whose accents or skin pigment differed from his own. Whatever capacity he once had for joy or wonder or gratitude atrophied, He critiqued and judged and complained, and his soul got a little smaller each year. Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young guy, and he grew to be a cranky old man. Then he says this, he says, But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that his soul would remain withered and sour year after year, Decade after decade, no one seemed bothered by the condition. It was not an anomaly that called head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held. 
to probe the strange case of this person who followed the church's general guidelines for spiritual life and yet was non-transformed. Why didn't Hank change? And why does he still live in our churches? Why, on way too many mornings, does he look back at us from the mirror in our bathrooms? What are we going to do with Hank? What must we do with Hank in us? The book of Romans, in the 12th chapter, says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed. Be changed. The expectation is that that we will not be the same people next year that we are this year. We will be being transformed to be more like Christ. It is simply not acceptable to be stuck in the same place year after year after year, succumbing to the same sinful patterns year after year after year. Something must be done with Hank. He must be evicted from our mirrors. But how do you do that? You know, years ago, I became keenly aware that if I let Hank continue to happily live in my life, that he could tank my marriage and damage my children and ruin the reputation of Christ and his church. It was that serious. And as a result of that, I undertook a process of dealing with the Hank in me that I have now been chasing through for for decades. I've been walking through that process. It's a process that I gave some more thought during my sabbatical, and I'd like to walk through it with you this morning so that the transformation that has begun in me as a result of this process will also be a blessing to you. And we'll see a lot less of Hank around these parts. But before we deal with that, There are two questions that I have to ask you before we can walk through this process. The first is simply this. Are you aware that there is a great crippling sin pattern in your life? Are you aware of that? And do you know what it is? And do you know that if unchecked, it's going to do great damage to the people that you love and care about most. Now, if you answer that question with something like, I'm, I'm good. No, really. I'm good. Then there is a great disconnect between you and a God who is holy, holy, holy. Okay. And so, what I would suggest is that it is imperative that we get alone with God. And hear what he has to say with us about the condition of our souls. The busyness of our lives has drowned out his voice 
as he speaks to us about these important matters. I was uh, down at the coffee shop the other day, and I walked in, and there was a North Waker sitting there, and he had on some of those big old headphones. No, not little earbuds, but the big old, you know, kind of alien-looking ones. And I said, hey, you got some new headphones? And he took them off, and he said, what? I said, you got some new headphones? He said, oh, yeah, they're great. I really like them. I said, well, can I try them? And I put them on, and it muffled everything in the room. It, and then he, he told me, he said, there's a button on them. Push the button. And so I push the button on the headphones, and there's this little gentle kind of white noise that comes in, and it just wiped out all the voices in the room. Even without music playing, I couldn't hear any of the other voices. That white noise just kind of killed them all. And I feel like the busyness and pace of our lives is that white noise that keeps us from hearing from God. So if when I ask you this morning, what's your great area of stumbling into sin that keeps tripping you up, and you go, ah, 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 then my recommendation to you is that you need to take some time, take some time alone, without the internet, without satellite, without texting, and spend some time with God so that he can speak to you about the condition of your soul. Um, there's a verse, real haunting verse, we talked about two weeks ago. Maybe you remember it. It's from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Don't let that be your self-description. Don't let that be what describes the pace of your life, that you are too busy to hear from God. So my recommendation, get away with God for at least a length of time as long as a football game. So if you have time to watch a football game, you can take that time and spend it alone with God, asking Him to speak to you honestly about the condition of your soul. But not just about the condition of your soul, about what He thinks about it. Jesus, in Matthew 23, has a lot to say about hypocrisy, which is what He calls the hank in us. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. These are Jesus' words. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So do you know what your sin is? This great pattern of sin that's tripping you up. And do you see it like Jesus sees it? That it's like a whitewashed tomb. Good on the outside, decay on the inside. So take some time to get alone with God and get his perspective on your sin. That's the first thing out of the blocks that we have to deal with this morning. If you need help with that, if you've never done that, all of our staff are engaged in this process on an ongoing basis. They can help you. 
And if you're going to the men's retreat this Thursday night, on Friday morning, we'll be having uh, time set aside to do this very thing together as men, seeking God about the condition of our souls and our life before Him. So I hope that you'll be able to take the time to get there. So first question, do you know what your great crippling sin patterns are and do you see those as God sees them? Second question this morning, do you want to change? Do you really want to change? Do you really, really, really want to change? Or are you comfortable? Are you content with the way things are? Calvin Miller, in his book, The Singer, said, No physician can give health and happiness to the man who enjoys his affliction. Do you really want to change? Or are you content in your sins? Those two questions are absolutely critical for the rest of the process I'm going to walk you through this morning to make any sense to you. You've got to know what you're shooting at, and you've got to want to change. You've got to want to change bad and be able to make a long-term investment in that change, as we're about to see. Now, if you want to open up your Bibles this morning, I am kind of ping-ponging all around this morning, but the most oft-quoted passage will be Psalm 119. So you can open up your Bibles there, and as we do that, I would like to pray for us that we would have ears to hear what God's saying to us this morning, okay? Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. Pray that we'd see ourselves well in your word. Pray that you give us ears to hear and a heart to obey. That today, for many of us, might be the start of real transformation where sin is killed and we become more and more like our beloved Savior Jesus. We need your, your help desperately for that. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a, a, a process that I've been walking through for a long time now. I, I believe that it is much, much neglected in the life of many believers in terms of uh, their transformation. Two simple words. You may want to write these down. Okay? The Bible. Okay? It's radical and edgy. I know. Let me say them again slowly. The Bible. Now, I know if there's a place on earth where the Bible is not neglected, it's probably here, right? Some of you have PhDs in the Bible. You have the Bible on your computer. You have the Bible on your phone. You go everywhere with the Bible. You read the Bible on your own. You come to church where the Bible's taught. You're in a small group and you take your Bible there and talk about it. But there is an angle, a way of thinking in using the Bible that I do really think is neglected. Let me, let me show you what, what I'm doing. Let's say that this morning you're here and this great area of sin that's in your life is anger. Okay? I'm not a prophet. It's just an example. But for some of you this morning, I'm speaking prophetically. Okay? Let's say anger is your problem. And if we were to sit down over coffee, I'm going to say, so you're struggling with anger. You said, oh, yeah, you bet. It makes me mad just thinking about it. And then, <laughs> and I said to you, so what's the Bible say about anger? And you say, hmm, 
it says something about the sun going down on it, and that's not good. I said, really? Tell me what else you know about what the Bible says about it. Well, basically it says, stop it. Okay. I said, well, tell me some more. See, what, what you may not realize is the Bible, if you, just, if you just look up in your English Bible, the words anger and angry, there are almost 400 references to anger in the Bible. And if that's your great sin pattern, then you should know that. And you should be familiar with all 400 of those verses and how they shape your life, how they bring the perspective of God on your anger and how they bring the remedy of God to your anger. There is a transforming power. There is a transforming power in a long, strategic soaking in the Word of God as it relates to your sin and its remedy. There is a transforming power in a long, strategic soaking in the Word of God as it addresses your area of sin. Psalm 119 is like a great portrait of this. It's the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's all about the Bible and, the, and its great power and its delightfulness to those who read it and follow it. Here's an example from verses 9 through 11. It makes a stunning claim. How can a young man keep his way pure? Young men are asking this question all the time. The Bible addresses it. It says, by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That the Bible is claiming the power to safeguard you from the very sin that trips you up so frequently. In verse 31 and 39 of that same psalm, pretty stunning claims are made. He says, I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. And again, in verse 39, take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. That the Bible has a way of safeguarding you from shame and disgrace, particularly before God. That if you don't like the idea of standing before God one day in disgrace and shame, then the Bible is for you. The writer of Hebrews is so vivid in his description of the way the Bible works. He says, the Word of God, it's living and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes even of the heart. So all of this I'm summarizing in this simple, simple phrase. There is a transforming power in a long strategic soaking in the Word of God as it addresses your area of sin and its remedy. I'd like to walk back through those uh, descriptions that I'm using in that sentence slowly. There are three of them that I want us to think about. A long strategic soaking in the Word of God. First of all, long. We don't change quickly. Um, newlyweds, I hate to bust your bubble, we do not change quickly. Okay? It's going to take some t- time to reform that man. Okay? We 
change slow. Here's why, I think. Because in the area of our great sin patterns, we've been working on that, refining that, digging ruts into our soul for years, if not decades. And unless God strikes us with lightning, typically his pattern for delivering us from that is not instantaneous. It does not happen typically in a sermon. Now, God does significant work in the context of a sermon, or I wouldn't bother my time doing it every week, but total transformation is a process that takes time. Um, James chapter 1, verse 4 says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Too mature to prevail over your sin patterns and be free from them so they don't dominate you anymore. It takes perseverance. Um, they've done some studies with all these crazy foreclosures that are going on now. And that in some states, a typical time from uh, the beginning of the process to the point where someone's actually evicted from their homes about 400 days. I'm going to suggest to you that that's not far off from what it takes spiritually to evict Hank from your home. You may need to do focused study in the area of your sin and its remedy for up to a year. I've done studies that have taken me longer than that before I saw the progress, before God would release me to move on to my next great sin pattern. It takes a long, strategic soaking in the Word of God to kill sin and then to grow virtue in its place because that's really what we're trying to do. Okay? You don't want to just kill anger. You want to become patient. You don't want to just not be proud and arrogant. You want to be humble. You don't just want to stop doubting. You want to trust God. Okay? So we're doing both of those things in this process. And those things take time to grow. To change your character, to become more like Christ, you'll need to persevere for a long strategic soaking in the Word of God. If you want to be less angry next week, I'm not sure that I have a lot of help and hope for you. But if you want to be less angry next year, significantly less angry next year, and you're willing to work on it for a year, then I, can, I have a lot of hope and a lot of help that I can offer to you. But it takes time. We change slow. It is a long, strategic soaking in the Word. It's strategic because you need to become an expert in what the Bible says about your area of sin and its remedy. You need to become the go-to guy or the go-to gal in this church about your area of sin and what it takes to kill it. I anticipate, as a result of this message, my counseling load decreasing tremendously. Okay. Because I'm just, somebody's going to come to me and they're going to say, I am struggling with uh, anger and I need to learn to be more patient. I'm going to say, Matt Joyner is your guy. He slayed that dragon. Okay. 
So, you need to become an expert in what the Bible says about your sin and its remedy. It is not enough to be vaguely familiar with a couple of verses. Stop it is not all that the Bible has to say about your sin. It says that. But it has so much more to show you about the character of God and His power to deliver you and what fuels that deliverance, what patterns feed it, and what starve it. Um, And that's the thing about this long strategic process. Sin typically does not die by execution. It dies by starvation. And this long strategic study is how you learn how to starve sin and feed virtue, the great character traits of Christ in your life. Um, Now, let me suggest uh, some ways that you can actually think about um, becoming an expert on what the Bible says about your particular area of vulnerability to sin. You're going to need to, cover to cover, explore the Bible and figure out what it says. Some of you have a book at home, a great big book called A Concordance. And it's, you can look up a word in there like anger and it'll tell you, it'll list for you all the verses that are used in that. If you don't have one of those, you can go online. This is one of the great redemptive uses of the internet. You can go to a place, uh, one that I've used, it's called BibleGateway.com. It's very simple, BibleGateway.com. There's a bunch of them. Uh, But that's one. You could type in the word anger, and it's going to pull up every time in in the English translation that you're working on. You have to use Greek or Hebrew. As far as I can tell, you get no bonus points for using Greek and Hebrew. Um, You can do it in your English Bible. Just select the version you want and say anger or angry, and watch what it pulls up. And then you have a list of all these scriptures that you can begin to reflectively, as we'll see, work through and let God use to shape, renew your mind so that you'll be transformed uh, by the truth of the Word of God. So if you were, for instance, going to study pride, and you went on there and you typed in the word pride, you'd find that there's 67 instances in the New International Version of the Bible where pride is used. You look up proud, there's another 47. You've got about 100 verses, 110 verses, that you're going to have to start working through course then that's going to make you think well i really desire not only kill pride i want to grow humility and you just look up humble and humility and you'll find another uh, set of verses along those lines that can help you walk through that process Um, some of you though right now you're thinking uh this is too much for me you are so so burdened by the white noise of your schedule and the weight of your sin that you don't have desire to do what I'm challenging you to do today. And here's, some, here's a great place for you to start, if that's where you are. If you just lack the want to in this whole process. Psalm 119. Just to read through that, and as you find verses that express the psalmist's longing for God's word, to pray and ask God to do that for you. Here's some, here's some examples. You could write these down. 20, 40, 97, and 174. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. Ask God to give you that longing. 
How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Ask God for that love. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law is my delight. Ask God to give you delight as you read the Bible and it works out into your life. It's a long, strategic soaking in the Word. And this morning, really the challenge is, will you invest the time to become an expert in what God says about your sin? Over the next season or two, will you devote yourself to that? Because during that time, I want you to be experienced a long, strategic, and the third thing I want to talk to you about is soaking. It's an expression that I use um, to mean it's not, I'm not asking you just to uh, become an expert intellectually on what the Bible says. We're really good at that. I don't want you to gather all kinds of information and data and put it in categories and, and you know, do an Excel spreadsheet on everything the Bible says about your anger and you know, the different Hebrew, uh, Greek, and Aramaic words that could be used and you know, whatever kind of diagrams go with that. I want you to learn all those wonderful things informationally, but I want you to sit under the Bible and let it soak into your life and change you, transform you. It's about not just information, but transformation. There's a guy, is an author named Shane Hips, and he did an interview where he's talking about the Internet. And this is what he says about the Internet. He says, the Internet created a permanent puberty of the mind. We get locked in so much information, and the inability to sort that information meaningfully limits our capacity to understand. He says, the last stage of knowledge is wisdom, but we're miles from wisdom because the Internet encourages the opposite of what creates wisdom. Stillness, time, and inefficient things like suffering. On the Internet, there is no such thing as waiting. There is no such thing as stillness. There is constant churning. So I want you not just to learn all kinds of novel new things about the Bible. I want you to learn all kinds of novel new things about the Bible and then sit before God and let those soak into your life and soul in a way that changes you. Um, There's another section of Psalm 119 that has some helpful elements in thinking about what that looks like. Starting in verse 27, it says... Let me understand the teaching of your precepts, then I will meditate on your wonders. The first thing he does is he prays for God to give him insight into the Word. When you open your Bible, you should pray and ask God to teach you. Not just to learn new things, but to teach you the things that will change your life. And then he says, I will meditate on your wonders. He's meditating on the amazing things he learns in the Bible. First pray, then make it a matter of reflection. Think about it. For instance, if you're you're thinking about the anger stuff, and the Bible says, you run across that verse in James where it says, 
You know, be slow to speak, slow to anger. What does that mean for you? What does that mean about the way you treat your husband? The way you treat your children? God, what does it mean for me to walk this out where I live, where I work? Just to reflect a tremendous aid in reading the Bible in this reflective way is a journal. Just a book where you log your thoughts. Now, guys, a journal is not the same thing as a diary. Okay? You don't have to start every entry, Dear Diary. It does not have to have Barbie on the cover. Okay? Get something with your favorite NASCAR driver's number on the front. Call it a, you know, a log book or a fact book or something and write in that. But a journal will slow you down and make you think deeply because you've got to write something. Okay. And it will just slow you down to the point where you will reflect enough to write what God is saying to you about being slow to anger and your life, your marriage, your work, your parenting. Um, it's a matter of prayer. It's a matter of reflection, this kind of reading of the Bible. It is also a matter of obedience. If you drop down to the very last verse in this section, he starts, or midway through actually, he starts saying, and he starts saying, um, keep me from deceitful ways, be gracious to me through your law. I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I will hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. He is intent when he reads the Bible that he is going to run in its path. He's committed to that. He is going to obey what God says. As you go in this next season of study in your life, you are prayerful, you're reflective, and you're obedient. You are doing stuff. If you start gathering verses this week on your anger matter, you'll start doing stuff this week. You won't wait until six months and you've mastered what the Bible says, but right away, God will be speaking to you about things, you'll be writing them down, you'll be acting them out in your home, and, and you'll begin that process of transformation by the renewing of your mind. Now, a couple other little things to add on to this. When you're done, write a summary of what you learned because you're going to have to come back to this. Sin dies by starvation. And you're going to have to come back to this and starve it a little more and starve it a little more. So write a little summary, you know, half a page, a page at the most. Just jot down some bullet points of what God showed you because you're going to need to come back to Him. And you are going to pass this on to the other people in our congregation. The people in your small group are going to know that you dealt effectively with a tremendous lust problem that was killing you. And your small group leader is going to send them to you and say, how'd you do it? Show them how you did it. And you're going to say, these are the verses that God used in my life. Let's walk through them together. And you're going to pass it on. You are going to become the go-to guy or the go-to gal in our church in the area of what now is your great sin as God sets you free through the study of your word. So write it down. The other thing that I found is that Hank is often not easily evicted by solo efforts. Sometimes it takes a band of people to get Hank out your mirror. Um, so people need to know 
People you know and trust and care about need to know that your area that you're working on has to do with anger or pride or lust. And believe me, they're all common. We've all dealt with them. Um, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, Paul says. And that's true. So let people know so they can, one, encourage you. We all are in desperate need of encouragement in these areas. And they will pray for you. God pours out his power when his people pray. So let people in and do this with them as a team. So, what's God saying to you this morning? What's he want you to do in response to these simple principles that have been so helpful for me that I believe are rooted in his word? Where are you supposed to start? What's he want you to do? I'd like to to use just a couple of minutes that we have left and pray a prayer for you from Psalm 119. Then the worship team's going to come and lead us in a concluding time of worship and reflection and prayer. Maybe alone. You may want to just sit back down in a moment and pray alone, or you may want to run around, grab a buddy that's in your small group and say, hey, this is what I think God's saying to me. Can you pray with me about that? And you can come down here and do it where there's more room, or you can do it in your seats. But let's use this time to respond to God and to ready our response to God as we leave this room today. So if you bow with me in prayer, worship team will come. This is from Psalm 119, starting in verse 33. Teach us, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then we will keep them to the end. That is our promise. Give us understanding and we will keep your law and obey it with all our heart. That is our commitment. Direct us in the path of your commands for there we find delight. Turn our heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn our eyes away from worthless things. And preserve our very lives according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servants so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace we dread, for your laws are good. How we long for your precepts. Preserve our lives in your righteousness. Have mercy on us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.